So uh, what I've already shared with you is the background, really, of what I've come up to, and this is just my usage for, for today, but the Nicene model. And um, I'm gonna, this is a, the macro perspective, and then I'm going to, in, once I present the macro perspective, um, then I'm gonna talk about two diasporas of the Eastern, Eastern Church to the West, and how that has occurred in the 20th century, and it's occurring right now, and how that's relevant to church unity and reconciliation. Um, now, what I'm starting with is post-conversion of Constantine, the Emperor Constantine. I, so I'm not dealing with the first 300 years of the early church. I'm really dealing with post-Constantine and the ecumenical count, the first ecumenical, really first and second ecumenical councils, which Constantine and Theodosius I brought together bishops from the Roman Empire. Rome was not represented in the first Nicene Creed uh, in 325, but the goal of Constantine and Theodosius I was to try to provide unity in the Byzantine world, okay, the Byzantine Empire, among the church. And the way, the way they did that is what is called the Ecumenical Councils. There's seven of them going up into the 8th century, starting with 325, which is the Nicene Council, the first one up to 785 that time frame most churches except all seven ecumenical councils but I'll clarify what I mean by that as well but normally uh, when we look at it we'll we'll see where some of these splits begin to happen now uh, that's why I called it the Nicene model now, in the Nicene, the one thing that most people don't really realize, especially the Western Church, <coughs> or let's say the Protestant Western Church, but the Western Church in general, is the, we think of the creeds that came out of these councils, but they did much more than establish creeds, okay? The first creed had to do with who was Jesus, okay? The incarnation. So the 325 council had to do with who was Jesus. And this is where you got, he was fully God, fully man, all the different things if you read the, 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 the creed itself. Uh, now, in 325, Constantinople had not been established yet. Okay, so you basically, in the Nicene Council, only had three main centers, they say primary centers, and that would have been Rome, uh, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem, maybe four in that sense. So now what's important that in the Nicene Creed that in 381, which is the first Constantinople Council that took place in the Hagia Sophia Church in Istanbul, Constantinople today. 
Now, this is post-establishment of the city of Constantinople. Okay? Now, in the creed itself, it uses four descriptive adjectives for the church. So, we often focus in on Christology, who is Christ. But it also says we believe, okay, we believe the creed in one holy Catholic apostolic church. Those are four adjectives. Um, when we think of reconciliation, you have to first understand, if you're going to be effective in reconciliation, you first have to know what literally is broke. Or where is the divisions located? Or else you will not have reconciliation. Or you maybe think you're going to deal with reconciliation, but you're not dealing at the root of the break. Okay? Now, these four adjectives, in my view, how you define them and how the Eastern Orthodox Church has defined the Eastern Christianity and the Roman Catholicism has defined them is quite different than how the Protestants have defined it. And this is rooted in division today. Okay? Just to know, in my view, in one key aspect of unity in the church has to be to come to some agreement on these four adjectives. Okay? However, it's a huge chasm. Okay? Because it connects into the second line, which most people don't know, were the five patriarchates. It's called the five patriarchates that were part of the the Second Council, the, because the full Nicene Creed came together in 381. It was started in 325. It was concluded in 381. So the Nicene Council that we, uh, Creed that we read today was the finished product of 381. Okay? In that, they brought in the deity of the Holy Spirit. But what you don't we don't always grasp is we think the issue is the creed and that that's all they did. But they didn't. They also established church order around five uh, main cities of the Roman Empire and they call them patriarchates. And they had an order to them based on the importance and size of these cities. So Rome, Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. These were the ancient early patriarchates of the Byzantine Empire, the Roman Empire. In that order? Also. In that order. Say it one more time. Now, what happened... What, what's important to know, this, I think it's Canon 28 of the Nicene Council. This is just as authoritative in the minds of the Eastern Church and of Roman Catholicism as the creed itself. Okay? This is most, we don't grasp that, that, that they 
This order has created more division and conflict than you will ever know because it really is an argument of who has first uh, authority in the order of the Roman Empire and of the church. Now, in 381, Constantinople was added to the list, and they were put in the second spot, okay? Because it was New Rome. Rome rejected this canon, and the only, when, the only time when the Roman Catholic Church conquered Constantinople in the Fourth Crusade, which is 1200, 1202, 1201. They, you know, the, crusade, the Fourth Crusade of the, Ro of the Roman Catholics conquered Constantinople and the church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, set up a kingdom uh, for 50 years. They actually stripped a lot out of Constantinople as it deals with relics and all kinds of church stuff and took it back to Rome. And Eastern Orthodox the Eastern Byzantine Roman Orthodox, they had to set up a kingdom in Nicaea, where the first Nicene Creed was located. Because they, and so then they accepted the 381 canon because they established a Latin patri uh, bishop in Constantinople. So now that there was a Latin bishop in Constantinople, they accepted this canon. So they accepted the creed, but they re rejected this order. The other thing is, and I can't get into all of the how the councils came about, but Alexandria was upset that Constantinople got the second spot. Okay? And many of the creeds or the councils were arguments from over the authority of patriarchates. Who has authority over what, what bishop, or, you know, it, it's very complicated. But the, the key point I'm trying to make, initially the Eastern Orthodox would say these patriarchates are simply an order of first among equals. So all five are equal, but the one that comes before the other has primacy as being first among equal. They have a higher say, if you want to say it that way. It's similar like if you have a Protestant church has a senior pastor, but you have a multiple staff. He should be the first among equals, right, of the other pastors. That's kind of how we might look at it. Now, the Eastern Church, Orthodox Church, continues, continues to think of... They, they're, the Roman, Catholic, Roman Catholics in West, Eastern Orthodox, Eastern, still are totally rooted in this patriarchate of the five that go back to early centuries. We think, well, the Roman Empire is gone. And if you go to these places, they're not, I mean, Antioch's a small place. They were all conquered, as we'll see, by Islam. So they were not 
that, and, and Constantinople was conquered by the Turks in 453. So, uh, so what the big problem came is that the Eastern Roman Catholic Church said that authority lies in councils when the bishops get together and make a decision together, then that is the authoritative decision. In the Roman Catholic Church, because the, in Rome, over a, you know, the period of time, the Pope didn't accept primacy, he wanted supremacy. Okay? And to this day, this is the whole issue of the supremacy of the Roman Catholic Pope. He is, has supremacy over everybody, all patriarchates, not just first in the sense of that's the capital of the Roman Empire and that's why they got in the first position that they did. So in light of that, you can have, the Western Roman Catholic churches have had many councils, but if the Pope does not <coughs> accept that council decision, it's not going to be it's not going to be accepted. In the East, it's the opposite. No patriarch or bishop can override the consensus of a council. Okay? That's why the Eastern Orthodox Church is so rooted in the authority of the seven ecumenical councils. This is like they are inspired to the Eastern Orthodox in their mind. It's inspired text, and you can't change it. Well, the problem is, is that as things unfolded, there's been constant... Now, these are the five ancient patriarchates. As the church grew in the Eastern Orthodox Church, other patriarchates have been added. For example, like Moscow is an autonomous patriarchate of the Ro Russian Orthodox Church, Eastern Orthodox Church. They are not under the authority directly of any of these other patriarchates. Okay? However, there is, there is an issue of primacy or first among equals. And this is what gets so confusing as history has unfolded and the Orthodox Church has developed is who is responsible to be under who, okay? If you do not understand that the Eastern Christianity and Roman Catholicism still live in this world, and with the Nicene Council Declaration of the Five Patriarchates, you cannot understand the core divisions of the church. This is where they exist. They still believe in these five patriarchates. And then, of course, the division between Rome and the other patriarchates, the eastern side, because Rome is the only western patriarchate in, the Rome, in Europe, the western world, it, when it declared supremacy, that's where there was the break happened. Okay. Um, now, so what this does is it breaks us now into two categories, Eastern Christianity and Western Christianity. So 
I've heard that you like double, I'll do it like this. This is, this, this really lost its, uh, okay. Okay, and this is Eastern Christianity and this is Western Christianity. And here you have Byzantine, Uh, Eastern Orthodox and you here you have Roman Catholic or Catholicism okay it's your basic two divisions but as you see underneath this skip Islam and the barbarians for a minute the first division occurred among the Eastern Orthodox not between the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholics. It was in 451, another council, the Chalcedian Council, which today is Katakoi, Asian side of Istanbul. This continued on, uh, now all of the churches in the East accepted the Nicene Creed, which is what we call orthodoxy of Christ being fully God, fully man, all of the different things. But in the 451 council, well, let me back up. In the 431 council in Ephesus, there was a, a bishop, of the, the patriarch of Constantinople, who was from Antioch, who went to Constantinople. His name was Nestorius. Nestorius gave a series of sermons, and this is, you have to understand, they're still trying to think out language in the area of the Incarnation, okay? Okay, they finally got in the Nicene Creed, okay, he's fully God, fully man, they tried to get all the language to get the Incarnation. Obviously, the Incarnation is a mysterion. You cannot, it's hard to put into language the Incarnation. God becoming man, fully God, fully man, all of these things. Well, as the other councils started to unfold, more minute arguments started to arise. And in 431, Nestorius, who is as conservative or as orthodox as you can get to the Trinity, did not like Mary being called Theotokos, Mother of God. He said that how can God have a mother? Okay. So this got into the bishop patriarch of Alexandria who didn't like the patriarch of Antioch. They were always in conflict. The Alexander in patriarch went against Nestorius. And in the 431 council... And you have to remember, this was the world, world of God and goddesses, okay? Ephesus, which I just got through doing a TV documentary, travel doc documentary on you. If you look at Exploring Ephesus, you'll, it just came out. One of the key elements of Ephesus is Artemis, the goddess of Artemis. So the issue is, you have to understand the, dis this, the discussion about Mary in its historical context, okay? So 
all he said is, I'm not comfortable with Mary being called Theotokos in Greek, mother of God. You can't have a beginning. How can you say the mother of God? Now, this just gets into, is there fully God, fully man? He's already accepted that. He's not questioning that. Then in 451 in the Chalcedon, Chalcedon Council, the argument was, or the debate of the council was, did Jesus have one nature or two natures? Then a later count, did he have one will or two wills? Now you can see on my note, these are getting. The other thing is, you have two languages, Greek and Latin. So those in Rome are coming, they don't know even much more. I mean, it's, it's, most Roman Catholics do not realize how much most of the creeds and everything were established in the Eastern Orthodox, not in the Roman Church was not that involved because they were speaking Latin and they didn't even really know all of the Greek language. All these councils were in Greek. So this argument broke out, does he have one or two natures? The Chalcedon Council said Jesus has two natures. That's, that was the conclusion of the council. Well, there was a whole group within the Eastern Church that di held, didn't hold that. They, didn't, they believed that Jesus had only one nature or a mixed nature. Okay, it gets into fine Greek language. But it split the Eastern Church into what I have here, Oriental Orthodox. These two, that's in four, let's say just 451 AD, that happened, okay? Which it did. Not only that, Nestorius was excommunicated outside of the Byzantine Empire, which was being excommunicated east of the Mesopotamian River towards Persia, and much of the mission movement going into Persia and in India, what they call the Nestorian movement, a tremendous mission movement. The problem is the Western Church called them heretical, or even the Eastern Orthodox Church means it was heretical, so that whole movement going east was heretical. And that's what's been taught in the West ever since. And in reality, we, if we sat down and we wanted to determine who is essentially holding the belief of Christianity, if you sat with a Mormon, they're going to define who Christ is quite differently. But if we sat down with somebody and we say, yes, he is fully God, fully man, and then we're going to try to figure out, did he have one or two natures? We're going to divide over that. You know, I mean, I've passed it for a long time, and I can tell you most Christians can never even tell you or explain to you the, the, the Incarnation or the Trinity in any precise language. And Greek gets into very precise language, okay? So the point is that we have lost the whole Church of the East and because of church history and because of this division. Now, the Oriental Church, then, is what we would call Armenians, 
today, the Assyrians coming out of the Syriacs out of Iraq, the Syriacs uh, coming out of Syria, the Coptic Christians are Oriental, uh, the Ethiopian Orthodox, the Indian Orthodox. Uh, these are all uh, out of communion with the Eastern Orthodox Church that we know it here in the Byzantine. They, the, Byzant, the Eastern Orthodox Church that we know today uh, will not allow communion to be taken by the Oriental Orthodox. So they're out of communion. Just, so uh, the, the table has been uh, uh, bare, you know, just surrounded in this sense. So it's a core of division. That was the first division. Now this, the second division happened between the Byzantine Orthodox, not the Oriental, Byzantine Orthodox and the Roman Catholics in 1054 A.D. But this was happening, the, the separation was happening for quite a while. But officially it occurred when uh, a representative of the Church of Rome came to the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople, walked into the church service, and excommunicated them based on this idea of the supremacy of the Pope and the Patriarchate of Rome, excommunicated them. That is what normally in church history in any book you'll see is the official breaking date of the Rome and the Eastern Orthodox. However, we, I just want to say that that division had been, ha I mean, was working its way culturally and through language and through other reasons, but this was the official. And I'm giving you the big picture. I know there's, I don't want to get in the minutiae of history because people want to argue this and that and the Orthodox did this and they did it. The main thing is we know who went into Hagia Sophia and laid the excommunication down. But the ultimate, ultimate separation happened at the Fourth Crusade. That's when it was finally finished. And no matter what causes that, we know the Roman, the Roman, Crusade, the Roman Crusade conquered Constantinople, took it over for 50 years, established their own Latin patriarch in Constantinople, and then after 50 years, the Greek Orthodox Byzantines got it back, okay? But that sealed the deal, okay? Um, so that happened here. That's the division this way, this is the division this way. Now, of course, as we know, 1517 is the division with the Protestants, okay? So, Basically, if we are going to look at the church today and talk about reconciliation, all of these four squares have segments in them, right? Breakoffs. But at the big picture, these are the four areas of reconciliation in the church today. These are the four categories of division, official division, that exist in the global church today. 
Um, now, let me talk a little bit so that we understand a little bit of this side because in the West, we grow up with that side, right? In the West, you're pretty much taught and your perspective in church history and everything is this. Or just growing up, that's all you know. You don't know this side. Okay? Very rarely does anyone have any understanding of this side. And there's a reason for that. Number one, we didn't have communications. You didn't have the internet. You didn't have places of real information. Most church history written by Westerners are biased against Eastern Christianity. They, they focused more on, because of these divisions, focused in on what they consider to be the authentic church. So, now, I use Islam and barbarians, European barbarians. Now, in the 600s, uh, Islam came out of Saudi Arabia and conquered almost the whole Middle East. They conquered Persia, they conquered North Africa, they conquered everything but what we know as Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, which was still under the Byzantines. Okay? They tried. They tried to capture Constantinople. So that means uh, that three patriarchates in the 600s came under the control of Islam. Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. Okay? They, then in 1453, the Turks concert, conquered Constantinople. Okay? So now, four of the patriarchates are under Islamic control and persecution. This means this church here, the Eastern Church, has always been a minority. It's always been somewhat poor. It's often been persecuted. It has been persecuted. Second-class citizens, the minority. And in a, in a way, it's been hidden, hidden because to survive in Islam, the world of Islam in these ways, they had to ghettoize, in a sense. They had to establish their communities as a minority and ghettoize. That's the only way they could survive. And in doing that, they built up a lot of tradition as well. That is not this man-made tradition, cultural tradition, but it happened. Now in the West, it's the opposite. This, the West, is, a very, is the majority going back to the establishment of the Holy Roman Empire. So when we talk about the Byzantine Empire, then you talk about the Holy Roman Empire, which really was solidified with the conversion of Charlemagne. And all of Europe came under the control of the Roman Catholic Church. So it was in a position of always majority and um, not really much more of the... Not, they, they were, it wasn't persecuted, so, and it was one of privilege in status of society. 
Then in the modern period, in 1929, the Vatican became a city-state. And yes, it's true, as I said, that the, the Roman Catholic Church had papal uh, states, but it wasn't in a modern state context. So we're talking post-World War I. When they, so they are recognized by the UN. They have official privileges in modern society because they are an official independent city-state. No one evaluates their finances. No one, they control their whole, they're just like a separate nation. Okay, they're a city-state. Now, the same way with the Protestants. When the Protestants went to America, so in Europe, we had this fight out in Europe, and when they broke up, the solution in, was to break up into each modern nation choosing what they're going to choose, and no, mostly Northern Europe chose Protestant denominations like Germany, Lutheran, you know, Dutch Reformed. And then the southern uh, nations became Roman Catholic, Italy, and others, etc. So it, in a sense, yes, there was privilege even there, based on where you're at. But when you went to America, America is the only nation in the world that was birthed Protestant. And pro because of that, Protestants had always had a state of, of uh, uh, privilege. And they were never really the minority. And of course, we know this played out all the way up to Kennedy's election in 60. That was still a big issue, you know. So the West has always been a majority and a privileged church. I'm not trying to make judgments. I'm just saying this is reality, okay? So with this, you can see there's two different worlds relates to the church. And um, and this is really still exists today. Now, before I really move on to the last point, which is the two diasporas of the East of Eastern Christianity into the West, which is crucial, what really what I'm moving towards. Does anyone have any questions about what I presented here? Are there any, is there a legacy of the Nestorian Church that can still be found? Well, yes, there's, we know, I mean, Nestorius never wanted anything to be called Nestorian. Sure. You know, he never started a denomination or anything like that. But the Eastern Church, the, what we, it's called the Church of the East. Okay, so that would even, it was outside of the Byzantine Empire, the Church of the East. So it was in Persia, China, India, uh, Central Asia. I mean, early on, when Paul was going west, the church was going east. Most people don't know that either. So in the 800s, the church of the Far East was larger than the church in Europe. But because of the Mongolian invasions and Islam taking over, the Church of the Far East was, was um, lost. It was destroyed. 
So up to about that time period, we do now, there's more research in history being written, and probably the best one of a good book is The Lost History of Christianity. Yeah, so that's so that's one that's one, but others are writing on this topic as well, on what they would call Asian Christianity. Uh, Moffat, I think he's a Princeton uh, church historian of Princeton. He wrote, I think, three volumes on the history of the more of the church. So this is now being rediscovered in a sense. Okay. So to be clear, the Church of the East is not. The Church of the East? Yeah. No, it's not. They're because the Church of the East doesn't exist anymore, as we would call it that. So the Oriental are still in the Middle Eastern region, but so they would still be in, in what we'd call at that time even in the Roman Empire. But the Church of the East was because of Nestorius being excommunicated out of the Byzantine Empire, and things were established in Persia, and then it was really a monastic movement. The main city in Turkey today that was the Antioch of the East is called Edessa, and today it's called Urfa, the city of the prophets, just north of Haran, where Abraham lived and was sent down. So Edessa, if you get it, their language is Syriac, close to Aramaic, very influenced, and today in the Mesopotamian region, there's still uh, Syrianis and old monasteries that, that uh, but that's Oriental Orthodox. Yeah. Where's the Russian Orthodox Church? The Russian is part of what happened was <clears throat> in the Byzantine Empire. Um, when Islam came in and controlled most of the Middle East, except what is modern-day Turkey, they couldn't go west evangelistically because of the Roman Catholic Church. They couldn't go east or south because of Islam. So they went north, and they evangelized the Slavs. They were, at that time, pagan Slavic. So Russia and most of Eastern Europe became... Eastern Orthodox. And what happened is that when Constantinople, actually before Constantinople was conquered, but when it was conquered by the Fourth Crusade, they didn't know if Constantinople, the Patriarchate of Constantinople, would even exist. So Moscow declared itself the Third Rome. And they took on that role because their goal was that the who is going to be a center, and that's why Russian Orthodox is so uh, of a, uh, and Moscow, they have such a long history. The thing is, though, they, as, and we'll talk about the diaspora, again, the 20th century diaspora, but under communism, they suffered tremendously. And many more martyr, martyrs in Russia and, and Eastern Europe than we even know about at, during that period. And that's where immigration 
and we'll talk about the diaspora to the West. And then, and, but, so that's where the Russian, the Russian Orthodox, though, are still part of Eastern Orthodox. They're not Oriental. Pardon? 15 minutes, okay. Any other? Does everyone grasp this? The big picture? Okay, now let's talk then, and I'll just kind of talk about at the bottom the modern diasporas of Eastern Christianity and church reconciliation in America. Um, what you have is basically. The I call this the first diaspora of Eastern Orthodoxy, and then the second diaspora of Oriental Orthodoxy. So this would be the 20th century, and this would be the 21st century that we're experiencing right now. In the 20th century, as I did in our chronology, the first thing in 1917 in the communist takeover, so you had a huge persecution and martyrdoms in Russia and the control of the church and in Eastern Europe really, and there you had the first migration of Eastern Orthodox to America. Then in 1923, when the uh, the Ottoman Empire sided with Germany in World War I and lost. The allies of the West were going to chop up the Ottoman Empire and their own control. So France was going to get a chunk. Germany was, or uh, America was going to get a chunk. Britain was going to get a chunk, etc., etc. The Greeks, again, Greeks had been part of Anatolia forever and ever. But in 1923, probably a third or more of Anatolia were Greek Byzantine Orthodox Christians. But when the Greeks decided to invade the nation of Greece, had broken off from the Roman, the Ottoman Empire, decided to invade Anatolia, Ataturk, who we know as Ataturk today, was a general, developed an underground army and defeated the Greeks from coming in. When he defeated the Greeks, he declared a population exchange. He said, all Greeks in Anatolia or in Turkey must go to Greece, and all Turks, because there was Turks in Greece and everything because of the Ottoman Empire, they all must come back to Turkey. When that happened, you had this huge Greek diaspora of Greek Orthodoxy. Not all of them went back to Greece, many of them came to America or to Europe, but mostly into America. So that was the other major diaspora that started to go on. Um, also in Eastern Orthodox uh, today is that um, there's still, as we get into this 21st century, even what we're experiencing today, there's still, in America, there's 15 jurisdictions of Eastern Orthodoxy, meaning they're autonomous, uh, but they overlap. So in a city, but they're in full communion. So you have the Russian Orthodox, the Bulgarian Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, the Antiochian 
Orthodox, which go back to the Patriarch of Antioch. Uh, so you have all of these jurisdictions of Orthodox churches that are in communion, but they're divided, and mostly they're divided ethnically and nationalistically. And they're deep divisions, because they don't want to come under. And one of the big things, the first missionaries, Orthodox missionaries in America were in the 1700s from Russia through Siberia, through Alaska, and ministering among the, the indigenous of Alaska. Then they came down into America. So this was before the diaspora of the communism. And they finally came to a point when the communism started, the church, the Patriarch of Moscow, felt like they couldn't oversee the Russian church, Orthodox Church in America, so they gave them autonomy. They had their own patriarch, their totally autonomous Orthodox Church of America. But the patriarch of Constantinople would not authorize, would not accept the decision of the patriarch of Moscow because of the five patriarchic order. So when the patriarch of Constantinople who was only has, I mean, he exists today. His name's Bartholomew. Just, I mean, if you see, he has, there are only 3,000 Greeks in Turkey. He lived, I mean, the patriarchic church is not a huge church. I mean, if you saw his office, it's like probably my, like my office. It's not like heavy, you know, he is not the pope of all of orthodoxy, like a lot of people think. He's just in the order of the patriarchate. Okay, first among equals. So this is where the, the divisions within Eastern Orthodoxy exist. They, they're different. He would not accept, because of his first in order, the decision by the Moscow. So now the Orthodox Church in America, that's what it's called, uh, is, is caught in the middle. And now there's a real desire to have one Orthodox Church with one leader, but it will never happen, I don't think, because the Orthodox Church is so divided, and normally it's through migration, and they've grown through ethnic migration, just like the Protestant Church did in the early years in America. If you were a Lutheran church, it's because the Germans coming over, your church would grow. But the second and third generation, your church started to decline. The same way what we're seeing in, in with the Orthodox Church. Now, in the most important relevant to us today now, that's why today the, we have the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Church in America, but we're blind to it. We don't even realize that these churches exist. Because we're so Western in our thinking, and we have never known the history. And, um, but that's the Byzantine Eastern. Now, dealing with the Oriental is more of the 20th, first century diaspora. When we started with, remember 2001, September 11, 2001, I told you all about things as the Arab Spring, and then with ISIS. Who are they beheading and who are they killing? Oriental Orthodox. All the cops that you just saw beheaded, they're or Oriental Orthodox. 
So now we're seeing a new, what I call the second wave diaspora of Eastern Christianity coming out of Oriental Orthodox. There's probably two million refugees in Turkey today out of Syria and Iraq. They've, I've heard, someone told me a third of them are Christian, Oriental Orthodox. But they're really going to America or Canada. Europe, there's some, but I still think uh, what we're going to see is like the cops, like Father Atef. I'm shocked. He said, in my community now, we have over two to 300 people now in America. He said, I was shocked. I didn't even know it. But during that time period, and someone I was just talking to in Seattle, where I'm from, they said, we have three Coptic churches in our area now because so many cops are leaving Egypt and coming to the West. And immigrating, so this whole second diaspora is ha is happening. So, for the purpose of church reconciliation, what my heart is is that, and I, this is coming out of my experience as well with Father Atef and how the Lord's led me, is that I've been kind of birthed into the Eastern. I call it the spiritual stream of what that is. And, of course, I'm still Western. And I grew up in the... I didn't grow up Christian, but I, became, I came to the Lord as a Protestant. And I've ministered all these times as a Protestant. But I'm a historian as well, but that doesn't mean the same thing until you experience it. So my heart and my cry is that if... There is an opportunity in America coming into the 21st century that has never existed in church history. And that is all four categories of the entire global church will be represented in America. The question will be, what do we do? Going back to the Nicene Creed, what's the center of the Nicene Creed? Christ the Reconciler, right? The Incarnation. So my heart is to see that the Western Church, and going back to the 60s at the hierarchical level, there's been dialogue between the Roman Catholic and the, the Eastern Orthodox to try to find some bridge of unity. Uh, it's it's going to be a long road from everything I read. I don't know if it'll ever happen. If they stay to the five patriarchates, if they hold to that, and they hold to apostolic in one holy Catholic apostolic, meaning apostolic succession. If they hold it as apostolic succession and describe it that versus Protestant hold it to be like the early church in Acts, they held to the apostolic teaching, not apostolic succession. So these are really crucial and root issues of where things are divided. Now, I have been very encouraged, I must say, um, I ha because I've been so identified with the Eastern Church, because I've been traveling there for so long, I, and because it's really Middle Eastern Christianity, that's what we're talking about, um, Christ was Middle Eastern. The church was Middle Eastern. So I've always had a difficulty with 
the issue knowing historically with the Roman Catholic situations of conquering Constantinople, uh, the whole issues have really been very difficult for me. But when we're talking about the prophetic themes that I mentioned, especially as what is God doing in this persecution and the martyrdoms that are so visible now, and I said church reconciliation, it's removed the idea that unity is around doctrinal issues anymore or our patriarchates. Why? Because when we're being beheaded and with the force of Islam that's rising up, uh, we're seeing movement of identifying with the others as Christians, <laughs> as brothers and sisters. And the first sign that to me is symbolic, but it's in the heavenlies, because I told you I believe there's a redemptive shift going on, is when Pope Francis recently went to Turkey and he went to visit the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople, whose name's Bartholomew, Patriarch Bartholomew. Again, he's, he is not the pope over all of the Roman Cat, or Orthodox Church. Don't, you can't get that in your mind. He only represents a part, but he is the first, if you take the patriarchates, and they, Rome still thinks in this way. So it was a symbolic meeting. And when Pope Francis had liturgy with him, and then he bowed before him, he bowed his head like this, and had Bartholomew lay his hands on his head to bless him and the Church of Rome, it just broke something in my heart. I felt something happen spiritually in the heavens. It was an act of humility on Pope Francis' part and you cannot grasp the act of humility it was unless you understand this history. You can, most people just see it, oh, that was just, that was nice, you know, but if you do not understand what he did, Pope Francis did, it was so symbolic and it was all over that he wanted to identify with the persecuted church of the East. All their statement was around, that's why he went, is to identify with the persecuted church of the East. Then, <clears throat> this is the second thing, and then we'll open it up and conclude. The recent 21 cops that were just beheaded in Libya on the beach, and then they declared after that, we're going to Rome. This is the first time Rome, the Western church, who's been in a state of privilege and ever have had to really, in a significant way, face the onslaught of Islam, the advancement of Islam. But this is the statement that Pope, Pope Francis made after the beheading of the 21 cops. Now remember, the cops are down here in the Oriental Orthodox, right? And he went to see Bartholomew in the Eastern Orthodox, okay? He says this, Pope Francis, he made this statement. 
The blood of our Christian brothers and sisters is a testimony which cries out to be heard. It makes no difference whether they are Catholics, Orthodox, Copts, or Protestants. They are all Christians. That is an amazing statement. Amazing statement. Because what he did in making, why, do you think he, he didn't just off the top of his head make those four categories. It's these four categories, and he said they are all Christians. And when he said, and why, it's because of persecution. So when I go back to the whole issue of trying to understand, God, why is this happening in the Middle East? Why are these churches in the, that have been there for centuries upon centuries you know, being scattered out of their historical homelands, these, per these Christians just totally being beheaded, their churches being built, their children being taken and sold into sex slavery and all the beheadings that we're seeing. How, what, is, what is this all about? And that's where, in, through this process, I felt God in the end say, it's for the unity of the church because I am now sending the Eastern Church is going to be, for the first time in history, coming into relationship or let's play contact in the same locations and permanent status uh, as citizens in America specifically. And it gives us an opportunity to raise up our eyes and take steps towards reconciliation between all four of these. There's huge barriers, and they go back to these, the roots that I'm talking about in the Nicene Creed issues and the, four, and the five patriarchates. Uh, but, you know, and then you have to define what is whole, one holy Catholic and apostolic mean. These are all big barriers. But God is a big God, and God can do things beyond anything we can imagine or think. But we are living in a new day. And so when I thought, spoke about a historical redemptive shift in history, I believe this is it. I believe this is what's happening. God is orchestrating something um, that we now are only in the middle of. It's kind of like you're in the river and on the, you know, you're going down the river, but you don't know where the river is necessarily going to go. But we know the direction of the river. We're, I mean, you can, we know what's happening. It's not going to reverse. They're not going back under to live under ISIS. They're not going to, you know, this is permanent diaspora. Um, so anyway, we are in a new day and... For me, what I am, and with Father Atef, what has helped me in him being my spiritual father, because he's at, we asked this question in the early days when all of these other things hadn't happened yet, the Arab Spring falling apart and ISIS and all that. Why did he come? Why would he, who is a leader of a major community in Egypt, God tell him to come to America? And we talked about this over and over again. And the only thing we can came up with, because here's a Western 
guy sitting with him. He's my spiritual father. I'm, betting, I'm benefiting from the spiritual riches that are buried in the East. And he can benefit from the riches that God has given the church in the West. So the first time the riches that have been deposited in both places can be imparted and we can have mutual benef benefit from each other if we can come in unity and functional unity for the maturing of the body of Christ, for the glory of God, that the, the world might know, the world might know that he exists. And that's where I think we are at. We're at that crossroads. The key now is what does that mean for us? And for me, I've, out of being with Father Atef, I'm much more in the stream of that spiritually. So it's not as difficult for me. It's not as big of a barrier for me. But I've tried to reach out. We're befriending you know, priests in the Eastern Orthodox Church. I have... Uh, you know, and, and I do not like the word conversion. When people say, oh, Protestants have converted to the Eastern Orthodox Church. I, you're only converted to Christ. Christ is not divided in my view. And to use that term, you might choose to be in a segment of the church for whatever reasons, but you're not converted to that in my perspective, biblically. I just don't see how it can be. And I think of the Corinthians passage. Am I a Paul? Am I a... Apollos, no. Can Christ be divided? No, he can't be divided. So <clears throat> I hope this helps in giving you a macro perspective, taking what I said this morning, the five themes, if you take that and take them through this kind of model, the Holy Spirit then will take over. Uh, there are many things that I cannot answer. There, I don't have all the answers. We're still in the middle of the process, the shift. But the Holy Spirit will show you. I believe very clearly that he'll speak to you in your situation. Uh, and if you're focused on Christ the Reconciler, then you will look for opportunities to be bridge to maybe not at the hierarchical level. It doesn't going to happen at the hierarchical level, I don't think, in many ways. But who knows how God's going to do it to bring unity to the church. And we're at one heart with that. I know you guys are all one heart here for that. Be Christ the Reconciler.